Philippians 4, we are going to read the end of this book. This is the final message in the book of Philippians, uh, number 18, actually. So well done, those of you who track with us all this time. Remember, this is written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, from a jail cell to a church that he loved so dearly. The Philippian church were his biggest supporters and, and his closest sort of companions in ministry in many ways. And so there's, there's an element of that, that affection that comes through here as he closes off the letter. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now, if there's any question in your mind, he's talking about financial support here. You revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We need to talk about money today. And uh, I'm going to give you a few reasons right from the start why we're doing that. We're doing it because that's where the letter ends. And uh, in case there's any question in your mind, basically a typical habit is to choose a book of the Bible or a a section of Scripture and work through it consecutively, just dealing with whatever comes up in God's Word and teaches us. And this is how Paul chose to end this particular letter. So it's just what's next. That's one reason we're talking about money today. Another reason is that it is a fundamentally spiritual issue. Many people uh, think of spirituality as the kind of esoteric, fluffy stuff you do um, that people typically label spiritual. Um, The kind of being spiritual, people think of meditation or prayer or or, uh, those kinds of things, things that that are kind of floating a a few inches above the ground. And they think about dealing with the kind of day-to-day stuff of life is getting a bit murky, a bit muddy. And uh, there's no real place for the church to get involved with this side of of, uh, of our lives. But actually, you look at the teaching of Jesus, and I will correct you very quickly. 
I mean, by some estimates, Jesus uh, spoke about money about a, a quarter of the time, 25% of the time. I imagine if one in four Sundays at Grace was the giving Sunday, when we talk about that stuff, you guys, would, I don't think the church would be, would be taking that too well. But the point was that Jesus, Jesus recognized that basically the human heart is a battleground between the competing demands of God on your life and of other things. And in that bucket that we call other things, money was pretty much the most powerful and seductive force in the world then and still is today. So if we fail to talk about it, then we're going to fail to understand where the battle lies in the heart to live for God. And a lot of it circles around this area. So that's my second reason. It's a spiritual issue. Here's my third reason why we're talking about it. Because there is the potential for, an, for so much experience of freedom in the Christian life when you learn how to surrender your finances to God. There's, well, last week we were talking about anxiety, weren't we? And I know that that theme resonated with many of you, if not all of us, because all of us have, some, have parts of our lives where we struggle with anxiety. But don't you agree that finances are often the one area that consistently comes up again and again as, a, as an issue? Um, for us, and, and a cause of anxiety. So freedom in the Christian life often involves some, a new relationship to your money. It can, freedom to serve God radically definitely involves a new relationship to your money. And uh, to find new focus and new purpose in your, in your work. So we have to talk about this. The big idea that I want you to get from uh, this, this passage, what I think is kind of the driving um, sort of idea we need to come away with, is that for Paul, the Christian life, you know, you can kind of think about two groups in, in the church. There are the people who are going and the people who are giving, but it's all for the gospel. Now, you need to weigh that and just think whether you think that's true or not. So John Piper put it like this. He said, there are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to missions. Zealous goers, Zealous senders, which he means people who pray and give towards those who are going. And he said, thirdly, the disobedient. (laughs) Zealous goers, zealous senders, and the disobedient. Now, I want you to weigh that for a second. Just ask yourself, is that true? Is the mission of Christ in the world so central to what it means to be a Christian that I'm either going in line with the mission, or I'm giving towards the mission, or I'm walking in disobedience to Jesus? Is that true? Does that have the ring of truth to you? If you're not a Christian, then I just wanted to relieve you for a second and say there are more fundamental issues in this. Like, is Jesus the Son of God? Did he die on the cross for the sins of the world? Did he rise from the dead? And is he therefore the Lord of all the universe? When you've resolved that, you can come back and think about this stuff a little bit later. (laughs) But for those of you who are Christians, and by the way, if you are not a Christian, that doesn't mean that the stuff I'm going to say today is going to be irrelevant to you or uninteresting. I think it will give you an insight, a window into what it means to live for Jesus. But if you are a Christian, then, friend, you'll agree with me that you've already settled those questions, haven't you? You've settled the questions in your heart about whether Jesus is the Son of God, whether he died on the cross for your sins, whether he rose from the dead and is seated in all authority over the universe, and whether he's purchased your life and you belong to him. So, obviously, if those things are true, the call that he makes on us is an absolute call, isn't it? There is no part of our lives that isn't coming under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And this is one of the big areas that Jesus put his finger on in the Gospels, in the teaching in the Gospels. So I'm coming from that place, from that assumption. If you disagree, come and talk with me later. I'd love to talk it through with you. I think he's right. I think Piper's right that there's goers, givers, and the disobedient. But I think maybe he draws the lines a little bit too, too strongly because really all of us as Christians are called to be on the move, to be going. All of us are called to be giving in some way to the mission. And so I want to talk to you about three things, going, giving, and the gospel. Going, giving, and the gospel. Let's begin with going. Paul, the man who wrote the letter, was a radical missionary living a life of self-denial and sacrifice for the cause of Jesus and his fame in the world. There came a point in his life where he trashed all his prior ambitions and dreams and all his career path and put it to one side when Jesus took hold of him and Paul said, my life is for you. And he undoubtedly lived at the very radical edge of what it means to be on mission for Jesus. There was no safety net for him. Um, His life was often in danger. He could never guarantee where meals were going to come from or whether he was going to have a place to sleep. He didn't know if he'd survive the journeys, never mind the places that he arrived at to preach the gospel because there was so much hostility in the world. He lived at the very radical edge of what it means to be to have faith in Jesus and to be on mission for Jesus. There's no question that he is an extreme example for us. And not many through history have lived quite like that. Some have, undoubtedly. Some are today. But not many, and not many in this room, are called to live quite on that radical edge. But I think all of us as Christians are called to make real sacrifices, aren't we? in the cause of the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. And so the question that Paul helps us to kind of illuminates here for us is, how do you live a life of sacrifice and devotion, radical devotion to Jesus, which often involves uncertainty and even pain and, and day-to-day denial of yourself without losing your joy? For some of you, that question is really relevant because even just living in a city like this, you feel a bit like Jonah. You know, living in London, you think is your calling, but there are certain downsides, aren't there, to living in London? How do you stay happy in Christ while you're here on mission for Jesus, even if maybe this part of you prefer to be elsewhere? Unimaginable to me. I think it's the greatest city on the planet, but I know some of you don't feel the same way. I want to give you what Paul's answer is here. On, under this theme of going. How is it that he sustained his joy? And really, we can capture it in one word. It's the word contentment. It, it, it came over in the first verses we read that he says, I rejoiced greatly that you revived your concern. So you started giving to me again, which was so incredible, he says. But then he says, not that I'm seeking, not in speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situa- situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment. Let me ask you a question. How often do you lose your happiness in Christ, or just your experience of joy in day-to-day life, because of things that you don't have, that you wish you had? 
can be simple things like a garden. Now, how many of you think to yourself, if I had a garden, life would be so much better. <laughs> you know, if I had a place where I could just lie down and just take most of my clothes off and bathe in the sun <laughs> whenever it, it appears, you know, without being the weirdo in the park who <laughs> does that. You know, if I, had, if I had personal space, I know, you know, some of you live in tight flat shares where you barely have personal space and you feel like you can never get away from people. And you do commutes where, you know, I, I've done it. Friends, I used to live in High Barnet and get on the Victoria Line at Euston. It was horrendous because, generally speaking, you had your face in someone's armpit or someone's face in your armpit. It was disgusting. And just, you think, how much of your happiness in day-to-day life is thinking things you don't have? Like, I don't have personal space. I don't have a garden. I don't have, you know, I don't have the stuff that would, that would make my life more easy. I don't have a car. You know, you think, I don't, I don't have a gym membership. I can't afford a gym membership as you tuck into your 20-pound Byron burger. You know, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have a yacht. I don't, know. I don't know. Maybe some of you think a little bit bigger than the rest of us. I don't have a yacht. I, don't have a, you know, I can't go sailing at the weekend. Or maybe it's very, very personal to your heart. Like, I don't have, I don't have a boyfriend. I don't have a girlfriend. I have a spouse. You know, I, don't have, I don't have children. I don't have, I don't have what I need to make me happy in life. Now, I think for a lot of us, your day-to-day life, your joy in day-to-day life is diminished by those kinds of thoughts, the thoughts of what you don't have at the moment, the perfect job or the, the perfect housemate or the perfect whatever, you know. Discontent lies at the root of much of our unhappiness, doesn't it? But I think this is not so much a, um, a matter of what stuff you own in life, it's much more a matter of the heart, isn't it, as to whether you're happy or not. I was amazed to read in, in Yuval Harari's book, Homo Deus, which I wouldn't otherwise recommend, just a little warning there, but it's an interesting book, a comment on the world. He says, he says basically that the developed world has grown wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, and with that has grown more and more and more miserable. No one seems to have clocked what's going on. We still fall to the same siren seductions of wealth, don't we? He cites the example of North, uh, South Korea, not North Korea, another story altogether. South Korea, um, who uh, in 1985, most of the population were um, barely educated and were living on the breadline. And within a generation, the nation has experienced extraordinary prosperity in comparison to where it was. But he says also the suicide rates have tripled. Bizarre, isn't it? And he asks the question, why? He says, because the glass ceiling of happiness is held in place by two stout pillars, one psychological and one biological. Just ignoring the biological for, for a moment. He says, your psychological happiness is, is determined by expectations. And he puts it like this. Dramatic improvements in conditions as humankind has experienced in recent decades translate into greater expectations rather than greater contentment. So the more people have, the more they think they ought to have, and the less happy they become. It's the conundrum of wealth, isn't it? Now, the reason why I want you to to just reflect on this issue of contentment and discontent in the heart is because Paul shows us what real freedom looks like in this area of life. He's really thankful to the Philippians for their gift. Really thankful. He doesn't want them to go away thinking he's an ungrateful wretch. He's like, I don't really need your money, guys. He's like, no, thank you. But he also wants to make this a teaching opportunity. And particularly, he wants to teach them 
that in any and every circumstance of life, he talks about whatever situation, he talks about in, 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 in any and every circumstance, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. You've got to re- recognize that for Paul, this is real because he experienced the twin, the pole extremes of, of lifestyle that we're talking about. You're more familiar, of course, with the fact that he, he experienced real poverty. Um, what he talks about here is hunger or need. Now, we're not talking here, friends, about the need that you and I experience when we've run out of data on our phones. You know, you think, I really need more data right now. Or the need you feel when your phone is over two years old and it's just moving fractionally slower than it used to, to operate. We're not talking about when your clothes are just last season, or in my case, last decade. We're not, we're not talking about those things. We're talking about real, tangible, day-to-day, will I get a next meal? Will I have a place to sleep? Will I have a night's sleep without being chained to a smelly Roman soldier? Which is what he was experiencing at the time he wrote this letter. Real needs. But he also had the opposite. He experienced real prosperity. You know, when he, when he first went to Philippi, the place he's writing the letter to, he stayed with Lydia, a dealer in purple goods, who was a very wealthy woman, and I'm, there's no question he would have had the help of servants in the house. He would probably taken his clothes every day to rewash them and present them nice and clean and pressed the next day and beautiful meals every day. He experienced prosperity. And you know what? In, in many ways, prosperity is the bigger danger, as we've just been discovering, to your day-to-day experience of contentment in life, isn't it? And joy. I, um, I had a couple of experiences going on holiday with my wife that really underlined this for me. One was when... Um, the year we got married, 2007, we, um, we went to Malaysia to go and do like one of those dinner receptions with a bunch of relatives over there. And it was a beautiful time. I put on loads of weight, the general trend of the first year of marriage. Um, it was a really great time. We had a really great holiday. And uh, when we got back to London, we, uh, the house that we were living in at the time, the, the heating had broken. And just to make it worse, we went the end of October, beginning of November, for this, this trip to Malaysia. And you have no idea the misery we felt in bed that night, lying there, freezing under the covers, just dreaming of the tropical climate of Malaysia. <laughs> and you know what happened was we'd experienced kind of con- the beauty of comforts, of warmth, of, of you know, eating lots of cheap food. It's so cheap. And then coming back to London and, and just having misery, basically. And uh, in comparison, it happened again um, about six months before Seth was born. Um, so we, it was our first child. We decided we'd go on a baby moon. And uh, we, we bought some tickets and we went to visit some friends on the big island in Hawaii. Some of you are thinking, how does a pastor get to go to Hawaii? <laughs> you marry a doctor, that's how, okay, friends? <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we, <laughs> it's not helping you, is it? Yeah, we're talking about contentment today, guys. So <laughs> stop judging me, okay? So anyway, we went to Hawaii. Best holiday ever. And um, yeah, so we had a really beautiful time. Our friends are professional photographers. They're the best photographers on that island, the most well-known. They get to go in all the five-star resorts, and they brought us with, with them to the five-star resorts where we could go sit on the beach with the turtles just laying eggs and whatever in the sand. And You know, 
not to make it sound too amazing, but it was amazing. <laughs> so, and then we came home to our flat where we had three lodgers, and none of whom had taken responsibility to clean the place. And it was like, it was like you know, the contrast between the beauty and then this, the grayness. And to make matters worse, again, it was the same time of year. Please don't go on holiday in November is the, <laughs> the great lesson that you can learn. But here, what I'm trying to say is that basically the more you experience of pleasure and, and comfort and prosperity in life, actually all it does is stretch your capacity for desire, what you want. You know, 10 years ago, I didn't know what good coffee was. Now I won't drink anything that's not single origin, lightly roasted, and perfectly brewed at the right temperature. Because somehow prosperity has made me a more ungrateful wretch than I was before. You know, this is what happened. So Paul had learned something here. Amidst all the trials of a life lived on the radical edge of mission, sometimes experiencing the joy of having plenty, and sometimes experiencing just a growling stomach because you haven't had a meal. He says, I learned something. He keeps saying, I know, I've learned, I've learned, he says. Something he's discovered, something he's walked into, a kind of spiritual secret. What is it? Contentment, he says. How? How does it work? How do you learn this? I'll tell you a few things that it's not. It's not a mindset. It does involve the mind, but it's not just retraining your brain to think differently, as though you could somehow will summon a new way of thinking just for yourself like that. Nor is it suppressing your desires in life. That's one answer, by the way, to to human suffering that comes from Eastern religions. It's suppress your desires and then you'll never suffer in life. You can't read much of Paul's letters or of the Bible, indeed of even of this letter, without realizing that Paul was a man with raging, swirling desire, mainly for Jesus. He never understood joy and contentment in life to be about the suppression of desire. Nor was it, similarly, nor is it a kind of stoicism. You heard of stoicism? It's an ancient Greek philosophy that seems to be experiencing something of a revival today. You know, Tim Ferriss is a famous guy who advocates for for being a stoic. Put a TED video online that's been viewed almost three million times on this stuff. And the the old philosophy was just basically, you're going to be annihilated after you die. There's no God. So in order to face life with contentment, which actually is one of their words that they used to use, they said you need to to have a gritty um, refusal to pursue pleasures or to experience pain, but to be sort of stable, just like even-keeled and determined and gritty in life. And you realize, okay, that... Paul deliberately uses the same word as the Stoics, but he uses it in a f- profoundly different way. Because for him, how, what was the secret to this contentment? It's there, it's there in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Friends, Paul's spiritual secret was a d- dynamic living relationship with Jesus Christ. Him strengthening he said, he uses a kind of present continuous verb that he means it's not just Jesus strengthened me once upon a time, but it's like every moment of every day I draw on Jesus for fresh strength. A living, dynamic relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that he doesn't approach life like the grim stoic, but Paul is happy. He is lighthearted. 
He's joyful. I'm sure he annoyed all the guys that he was in, in prison with because of his bubbling over joy. You know, we have an account of them in the book of Acts in prison singing songs in the middle of the night. Everyone else is like, shut up. And Paul's like, I just love Jesus. Just singing. That's how he lived. Just this swelling happiness because Jesus is enough. So next time you're, you're looking at your life and thinking, I'm, I'm unhappy because I don't have this or that or the other. Look at what you do have. You have Christ, my friend. And the bigger and more satisfying Jesus is to you in your heart, the more you can let go of and put behind you in living for him on mission. That's going. Let me talk about giving. The second thing, giving. Because most of us, admittedly, are not going to live as Paul did on the very front lines of mission with no guarantee of where you're going to get your next meal from. So you may ask yourself, what is my contribution? What part do I play in the furthering of the gospel in the world? And is it important to God? Does it matter to God? And there are some huge encouragements that come through in the way Paul talks about the role of the Philippians in the mission that he was involved in, primarily through their giving. I want to show you three things that come through in the way he speaks to them. The first is this, and it might sound a bit obvious to you at first, but just I want you to, to listen and just to meditate on this. The first is this, that giving furthers the mission. The reason you might have just think, oh, that's obvious, but it may not have connected with your heart. Because next time you're at work and you're having a, a tough day, the, the boss is keeping you in, or you've got a deadline that's just frustrating you, or you're just tired of doing the same thing over and over, or the projects are too difficult for you, or for whatever reason your work makes you unhappy, have you ever connected the challenges that you face in your day-to-day life with work, the stresses and strains of day-to-day life, with the mission of Jesus in the world? Does that, does that form a motivation to you? Do you sit there and think, no, the reason why I'm doing this is because I can be instrumental in furthering the gospel in the world. I'm not saying that's the only reason we go to work. But isn't that a massive motivator if you really let that sink into your spirit? It will drive you to pursue promotion, not for selfish gain, but for what you can give. It will drive you to pursue leadership and to be influential in, in work that you might earn more, that you might give more. Now look carefully at the way Paul thinks about the connection between their giving and the mission of Jesus in the world. Look at verse 15. He says, he says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So Paul is remembering a time when the gospel was just like a tiny seed. And now he looks back years later and says, and he can look back on success. He can look back on churches that have been planted all across the known world. And he can say, you guys were involved from the very start when this thing was just a dream. When I hadn't gone to all these places and hadn't planted all these churches, you guys were involved right back then and you made it possible. He's drawing a connection for them between their generosity and the prolific growth of Christianity across the Roman world under Paul's work. It comes through again in, um, in verse, uh, where are we? Verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So he's saying, friends, it's not about me getting your money. It's about what I can do with the money, which is the fruit 
that increases to your credit. In other words, there's a connection between the fruit of my work, my labor, seeing people come to know Jesus, them experiencing the, the amazing power of the gospel in their lives and are forming new communities of Jew and Gentile all across the world, the fruit which increases to your credit. You are to be thanked. Paul had that mindset. You know how a CEO's job in a company is to deliver profit to the shareholders. It's written in law. The Companies Act. Companies exist to deliver profit to shareholders. And Paul thought this way. He says, one of the reasons that I get up in the morning is to deliver fruit to those who are giving, sowing energy, time, money into the mission of Jesus Christ. Giving furthers the mission. There is a one-in-one connection. Here's another way it comes through. He says, he says to them in verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Now, just speculate with me. If Paul had not been well supplied, if he had not had enough, I don't think we'd even have his letters because paper costs a lot of money. And Paul can look back on his life and say, I've, got, I've had everything I've needed at any given point in time so that I could do what Jesus called me to do. This week, we just employed Jeremy uh, as of last, sun, last Sunday, his first day of work. And uh, he's beginning to experience something of the being well supplied. He, we got him a laptop because his old one, as James put it, was diesel powered. I mean, this thing was like, <laughs> like seriously... Um, defunct. We, he's going to get his first paycheck in, in a week's time. I know we're talking about stuff that you know we don't usually sort of talk about in a sermon or on Sundays. But friends, what is this about? It's about the fact that you have been generous to this church. We have been able to employ another man who feels that he's called to spread the gospel in the world. And Jeremy can look at you guys and say, "I am well. I'm supplied. Maybe not. I'm well supplied, but I'm supplied. He's got what he needs." And by God's grace, God's going to use that man. And he's not going to be the last guy that we're going to draw in and train up and send out one day for, for church planting and mission in the world. There is a connection, friends, between generosity and you grinding out your paychecks month after month so that you can give to the mission and the growth of the church of Jesus Christ in the world. Never forget that. Here's another thing about giving that's a huge encouragement. Giving involves a deep partnership with the mission. Now, the reason I want you to see this is because it's possible for giving to be kind of cold, heartless, um, guilt-motivated, and even a drudgery. But Paul sees it as a dynamic relationship of what he, he uses the word koinonia, fellowship. We talked about it ages ago when we were looking at the book of Philippians as a really important word for Paul, this word fellowship, koinonia. And you can't see it here because... It's always translated different ways depending on the context, but it's there in a couple of places. In, in, in verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The word share is to have fellowship, partnership with me in my trouble. It was kind of you when I was in trouble for you guys to come alongside of me by giving me financial support. We were enjoying fellowship with each other when you sent money to me and I was in trouble. He says it again in the next line. He says that, that um, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into fellowship, koinonia, partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now, what, what I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is that for Paul, as the recipient of the gifts of these generous Christians, it was like they were speaking his love language. As a missionary, 
He knew that people were on board with him and what he was seeking to do. They trusted him, they loved him, and they were praying for him when they were giving to him. That was when he felt their partnership in the gospel. I'm sure it made his heart leap with joy, not because of the money, but because he's like, the Philippian church care about what we're doing in the world. That was his experience sort of subjectively. It's why he started the letter with, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They've always been his kind of supporters and encouragers right from the very start. But also from the perspective of the Philippians, which you know, for most of us, we're in that category. We're the guys who are giving to others to do the work of God in the world. As well as being involved ourselves, of course. But you know, from the perspective of the Philippians, this means that they had, by their giving, their support, a dynamic living connection with the frontline mission of Jesus. They cared about what that was happening locally and globally. You know, friends, when, when you give to our church, we are, um, we're giving 5% of all our income to global mission. And we're storing up the other 5% to allocate it to another 5% to allocate it to um, other forms of mission and church planting, as and when we, we, we see the right opportunities arise. Besides, of course, that money supporting the existence and growth of this particular church. It's fellowship on a deep level. Here's my last reason why giving is so, um, is so much an important thing to God when it comes to the furthering of the mission. Giving is worship. He says in verse 17, oh, verse 18, I received from full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What is worship in your mind? What is worship in your mind? I think people have... Again, poll extreme views that are not too helpful if you settle on just one or the other. Some people think of worship just as singing and uh, the gathering of the saints to sing to God, but it has no connection with what they're like on a day-to-day basis outside of church. So some people are like, they, they just love the Sunday. They love the experience of worship, but as soon as they step out, you can't tell the difference between them and, and, and someone who doesn't love Jesus often. Because it's all about the encounter and it's not about living a life of worship. But the other extreme, there are people who, who think, no, 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 worship is all about just my day-to-day life of being faithful to Jesus. And you know, so, you know, there's no momentary enjoyment of those extraordinary kind of mountaintop moments of, of encounter with God and of worshiping him in a very deliberate, conscious way. And friends, obviously the biblical answer is it is both. It incorporates all of this. That yes, you're meant to have the background, constant experience of living a life poured out to God in worship, but that life is always also punctuated by these momentary decisions of consecration to God in certain particular ways. One of them is offering, the New Testament uses all kinds of examples. One of them is is sung worship on a Sunday when we worship him with with our mouths. But another way, in fact, the first way you see in the Bible arguably, is through giving. Because Genesis 4, Cain and Abel both seek to worship God through giving, don't they? And God receives Abel's worship as a fragrant offering then, his gifts. 
Do you worship God this way? Let me close off talking to you about the gospel. Just in light of everything we've been saying, what it means to be on mission with Jesus, either radical in going, radical in giving, but all of it swirling around what Jesus is, trying, is seeking to do in the world. In the light of all that, do you look at your own life and, th- and see yourself as, yes, going full tilt, seeking to live radically for him? Or do you look at your life and think, no, I am absolutely not? And if not, how does that develop and grow? How do you bring all of your life into surrender to Jesus in this, this realm, particularly of how you, your attitude to and handling of finance? I, I want to tell you a wrong way. I think a wrong way would be that you go away from here feeling a heaviness of the ought. I ought to do this. And the weight of guilt as though, you know, that should drive you to the right kind of behavior. Let me show you why that will fail. Because it will fail in going, for one thing. Because people who are driven by guilt to do what Paul did and, and lay their life down for the mission of Jesus, they may be as radical as him in their lifestyle, but I promise you this, they will never be as happy as him. They'll never experience this contentment. They'll never sort of put their head on the pillow or the stone floor at night and have a sweet sleep in Jesus just knowing that he is their friend. So they may do radical things, but it won't be marked by joy. Think about what it means to give out of guilt. You might give. You might give more than anyone else. But I don't think it will be a fragrant offering to God if it's driven by guilt. Just think about that contrast between Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable and Cain's was not? Because it matters where it's coming from in the heart. The key, my friends, to having a life that is revolutionized in every department, but also in the area of your finance, is here in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What did it mean for Paul? It meant that he could cast himself on a loving father every day because he knew that no matter what hit him, his life was secure in God. It's the gospel, friends. It's knowing that if God gave his son for you, he won't withhold the things you need. When you deny yourself, when you turn away opportunities because you want to live on mission, when you make conscious choices to live a life of sacrifice, you can rest in the gospel. Equally for the Philippians, they could dig deep, even so deep it's painful to hand over But they could do it because they believe in a loving Father who supplied everything they need through Jesus. So, the gospel of God's love to us displayed most perfectly in the gift of His Son to us when He died on the cross. That gospel 
can make you radical. It can turn your life upside down. So before, friend, before you decide to do anything differently walking out of here today, whether in going or in giving, before you decide to make any change in your daily life, I think it's more important to ask yourself, do I believe this? That my God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Does he love me? Do I know the experience of the Father's love? If the answer is yes, then what are you waiting for? You respond now. You make whatever changes God is calling you to make because you know the Father's love. Every good fruit that comes out of our lives is motivated by this, isn't it? If the answer is no, then maybe, I don't know where you are at, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe the first thing you need to know is what it is to experience the love of God in your life by giving your life to God and by believing in his son Jesus, that his death on the cross paid the penalty for your sins. That is how you experience his love for the first time. If you are a Christian, maybe it's a case of rediscovering that love for whatever reason and can be different from person to person. You may have not felt that you're walking under the sunshine of his love and of his favor or the experience of it or believing it. Maybe we can pray for you. We'd love to do that. Sometimes the Holy Spirit can just do things in your heart, even on the spot when you just say, I need a touch from God. And friend, that's more important than you dealing with the finance stuff. Because it will lead to that, I've no doubt. But the most important thing is that you know the love of God.